if you try to do what's right and try to avoid what's wrong, that's great. But if you don't deal with what is, you will not make it. And so a lot of my career was learning, trying to do the right thing, and sometimes dogmatically so. But it wasn't until you work with what is that you can become successful. Benstown President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> My next guest has worked as a former program director of New York's WABC. She's trained presenters and producers throughout the United States, the BBC, Reuters, the Associated Press, the ABC in Australia, CBS, NPR, and dozens of stations and groups throughout the world. She's also consulted for three documentary films for PBS and authored four books that have been translated into nine different languages. Please welcome Valerie Geller. That is uh, such an impressive uh, resume, Valerie, and I'm so happy to have you here. Well, Chachi, thank you so much. And of course, you know, our careers sort of um, dovetailed forever, like for about 30 seconds at KFI Coast. That's when right. you were there. And that's where you and I first met. And you were such a promising young lad. And I'm not the only person that is just so proud of you for achieving promise, Chachi. We're so proud of you for Benstown and all you have accomplished and achieved and and your creativity moving forward and being able to navigate the ever-changing waters that are our business, you know? Uh, well, that so, is so I'm, uh, I'm really flattered. So kind of you to say. I really uh, greatly appreciate it. And I've, uh, I've watched you and studied your career and just so impressed with everything that you've accomplished. And it is uh, really an honor to speak to you and appreciate you taking the time. It is truly, truly my pleasure. Tell me a little bit about growing up here in Los Angeles. Not a lot of people are actually, I feel like a lot, not a lot of people are raised in LA. I feel like a lot of people move here, but they're not raised here. What was it like? Right. I, well, you were raised here, weren't you? No, I was raised about a hundred miles east of here out in the desert. So okay. near, near Palm Springs area. Right, right. Um, I grew up in West Los Angeles, you know, and, and uh, attended, you know, all through school here in Los Angeles. And I really was very, very affected by what was going on in my generation uh, during the time of Woodward and Bernstein and the Watergate trials. And I fell in love with journalism. So I started writing and I was always a big, huge talk radio fan. I grew up in Los Angeles listening to Michael Jackson and Joe Pine and all of the people that were on the air when I was a kid growing up. I was one of those kids that had a transistor radio and I was a nocturnal animal. So everybody else would be asleep and I would be up listening to talk radio, you know, as a little kid and occasionally calling talk shows. And so I was this, you know, weird, strange child in love with stories, uh, in love with imagination loving radio. What I loved most about radio was the imagination. And pretty early on, I understood that you could use language and sound and just create movies in the mind, you know, and paint with all the colors with, with imagination. And I was just entranced with radio. So I fell in love with it in a, at a very early age. 
I did grow up in sort of what I, I look back on now and just see a really amazingly happy childhood. And I'm still actually in touch with lots and lots of the people I went all the way through, you know, elementary school, kindergarten, high school with, and, and we are all in touch today and still maintain friendships. So I think that is the gold of coming out of growing up in, in West Los Angeles is maintaining relationships with wonderful people uh, who have all gone on in their lives, but we're still all in touch. You were six years old when you first, I guess, discovered a transistor radio. Is that correct? Was it gifted to you? How did you get it? Here's the deal. It was gifted to my dad, but it was appropriated by yours truly. (laughs) You know, he'd say, where's that transistor? Oh, look, check Valerie's room, you know. Now, do you have a, do you have a recollection of when you're, I guess, borrowing it from your dad? Was there like a moment that you remember? Well, here's what happened. I used to grab it and listen to it at night very, very softly. And I, you know, I do remember just thinking it was this magical thing. You know, you could hear music, uh, all the stations, KJ, rock. I mean, every kind of music and all kinds of wonderful, wonderful people and fun. And, and it was just very exciting. And so it was brought in other worlds. And the first time when I was really little, I was probably six or seven. I used to listen to the Joe Pine show. And one night he had done a radio show about, it was call-in, about how children should be seen and not heard and you should never take them to a restaurant. So I listened to that and it infuriated me. And he'd given out a phone number. So I remember late at night, walking down the hallway, picking up the phone and calling in to the Joe Pine show. And he (laughs) put me on the air. And he, he said, you know, what do you want, kid? And I just said, look, When you're little, everything in your life is dictated to you. You're told when to go to bed, what to wear, who to play with, when to go to school, what to eat. Everything in your life is dictated to you. The only thing we can do is make noise. So leave us alone and just don't bother us if our parents choose to take us to a restaurant. (laughs) And he, he had done this diatribe diatribe about how children should be kept at home so that adults could enjoy the meal. And it infuriated me. We're kids. We should have the pleasure of having somebody other than our moms make us lunch, you know? So he and I got into it and he basically said, kid, you can call my show anytime. And so I became like in LA, a regular kid caller on the Joe Pine show. And I would still run into people, Chachi, like years later, they were like, you were that little kid on Joe Pine? Amazing. Sadly, he was a big smoker and he died pretty early on of lung cancer, throat cancer. But his show really shaped, I think, uh, a lot of my thinking because I'd never heard an adult talk like that. And so it just really opened up whole new worlds. So he eventually invites you to come and visit the station, correct? I did take a station tour. I did indeed take a station tour. And in fact, I I would go visit stations all the time. There was never a state, like if, if there was a radio station, let's say our family was on a vacation and we would pass by a radio station, I, I'd see if we could stop in, you know? And of course, later, um, one time my car broke down when I was driving cross country between radio jobs and I was in Mobile, Alabama, and I was at a really old Toyota and it just broke down. And I saw this, the, um, the tower and I saw the radio station And I pulled in and they set me up with a mechanic and a motel and let me hang out at the station. 
Wow. And it just, it was like the, the band of gypsies <laughs> that we belong to, you know, in our radio world that I was a broadcaster on my way to a gig from Denver to Tampa and these wonderful people at WABB. And then I found out later, Scott Shannon had been there and all kinds of amazing people had worked out of that station. So again, I just think it's a, a unifier and there's definitely a plan of radio and broadcasting. There's definitely a tribe of people. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. I, I think about that a lot um, as of late, just because we haven't been able to see each other in such a long time because of the pandemic. And it's been uh, really it. lonely. Yeah, yeah, it's been really lonely. And I think if you're used to interacting and going to conferences and for me, walking into radio stations and working one-on-one -on -one with actual broadcasters, it, you know, Zoom's okay. But it's just not the same as being in the room and being able to hang out with, you know, we're, we're animals, you know, and we like to be with our packs, you know. I agree completely. I think there's a lot of creativity that is missed uh, via, via Zoom and, and technology, and you need to kind of uh, be next to each other and to uh, collaborate with each other to uh, be great creators. I think there's certainly a lot of efficiencies and some fantastic things that have come out of Zoom, and we've learned a lot about working remotely, but it doesn't replace that uh, human connection. No, but what I've found was I just turn off the camera because if I'm looking at somebody, but we're dealing with radio or we're dealing with a podcast where it's audio, it's so much more powerful to turn off the picture and you listen differently. And so I only use the picture if it's, you know, vital or necessary. I'll often just go audio. And when I'm air checking people, I'll ask them to use audio on Zoom. And somehow it goes back to feeling like radio and it's much com more comfortable. Uh, the New York Times just did a huge piece on Zoom fatigue, particularly for women. And one of the reasons why is that men are very, very visual. And this comes right out of the brain science, how men and women take in information very differently. And men are so visual that if they're looking at something, they can take it in fully. But women, while they like the visual, tend to be more emotive. And so for women, you can't pick up all the cues in a room that you could when you're looking at a person. And so it's a really interesting thing. This comes directly out of brainresource.com. It's, it's research that we talk about in the book, how men and women take in information differently. For example, you know, for a man, if you can describe something visually to him, uh, and especially on the radio, if you can paint word pictures, a guy will grasp it. Uh, if you explain something visually to a woman, unless there's an emotive component, and this isn't true for everybody, it's like 80%. But if there isn't an emotional component to it, uh, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't have the impact that you would like it to have. Here's a better example. Let's say, for example, you're a guy and you're with a woman and you're watching television. And the man is looking at the woman out of the corner of his eye. So actually to the guy, it feels like he's spending time with her. But no woman on earth counts that as time spent together unless you're eyeball to eyeball talking and connecting emotively. And the same is true with music. You know, they always ask why, why does AC music move women so, so deeply? Because it's very emotive, rock and roll, very visual, very hard. You know, every guy listening imagines he's up there with a guitar and a leather jacket, you know, and, and it's very visual stuff and it's very visceral. And so again, when you really look at this, we can apply it to radio and podcasting now. Uh, if you can use the emotive and the visual, you can reach both men and women. So even in doing Zoom, if you turn off the picture and you just go audio, you hear people in a very different way 
than you do when you are looking at them, at least for women. And I think it's true for a lot of men as well. That's really fascinating. Not only is that, I think, great advice for on-air talent and for programmers, but I think you would also be a very effective marriage counselor. Well, the best advice for marriage counseling, and I, I really got so excited when I heard this, I was listening to an interview with, you know, actor, director, uh, Henry Winkler, you know, who played the Fonz. Yeah, sure. Happy. Okay. So somebody had asked him, he's had a really long-term marriage and it's a really good relationship. And someone asked him, well, what's the secret? And he laid this out and I just think it was solid gold. And he said, it's not what you say, it's how it lands. And that is true for radio, Twitter, sitting across a dinner table. It's not what you say or what you meant to say. It's how the audience or the other person is taking it in. And he said, that's how he has managed to have this wonderful relationship because he he's very verbal and he has a lot to say, but it's not what he says. It's how she hears it. And I thought that was fascinating and that actually is. quite useful. You know, for us with Twitter, there's all this brouhaha. It's not what you say, it's how it lands. Look at all the, so true. you know, the storms that, tr that Twitter gets into because people took it the wrong way. And, you know, so many times it's like those lyrics that people, remember those, those lyrics that you didn't understand and it had a different meaning, you know, those Friday night quiz shows. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's not what you sing or what you say, it's how it landed. People didn't understand. So again, for communicators, it's a good reminder to make sure that what we're saying and what we're uh, putting out there to the audience is really clear as to our intent and meaning. Really good counsel. I, really fascinating. Back to when you're growing up, because I want to learn more about you uh, before we get into kind of the rest of your career. What did your parents do? My dad was a doctor. And in fact, he was chief of general surgery at Cedar sinai Medical Center. Uh, my mom was an early education childhood uh, development teacher. And she also was a poet and ha has been a published author. Uh, and she was somebody who very, very, very creative. I think had she come out of another time, she would have had a very, very big creative life. She couldn't have kids. My dad and mom tried to get pregnant a bunch of times and they were unable to have children. So I was adopted and it's just been a fantastic, I mean, you know, when you're adopted, you're really a wanted child. And so everything got poured into, you know, if I wanted to be a drummer, you know, they would hand me a mayonnaise jar and a wooden spoon and say, be a drummer. <laughs> you know, if I was interested in a writer, I got the whole John Steinbeck series so I could absorb it and read all of the books. Um, my dad loved sailing. My mom liked the mountains. So we had a boat growing up. I was very, very fortunate. Unfortunately, I am not a sailor. And so I remember a lot of our childhood vacations, you know, throwing up over the side of the boat, <laughs> much happier, more, you know, where you were, we, you know, going up to Idlewild or, or going to the mountains and the Sierras. I'm a mountain woman and I love trees and forests. So the ocean is very nice, but, you know, from a distance, and I really do love forests and hiking. So uh, I did Outward Bound, which is a survival 30-day program where you go into the mountains of Colorado and you're really testing yourself against yourself to survive. And it was doing Outward Bound, which still exists today, doing that program that I really understood that you could, you know, climb up a solid rock wall face, ford a river that was impossible to go across. And it was about working with teams and it was about survival and it was about helping one another. And then they also had a pro uh, three days of that, of the 30 days was called Solo, where they would put you with no food. You got some water or you were by a river, but you were in the middle of nowhere all by yourself and you had to live for three days and 
fend for yourself. And at the end of that, I really knew in my heart that if you don't try and if you don't go for what you want to do, you're never, ever, ever going to know if you could have accomplished it. And it's better to try and fail than not try. And so at that point, I decided I didn't want to live anybody else's life or any other life that had been pre-prescribed. I really wanted to live the life that I was called to live and do the things that gave me joy and gave my life purpose and meaning. And in the beginning, it was writing and journalism and radio and any kind of creativity. And I really wanted to be able to be in a position to put that out there for audiences. And it's always been really exciting for me. But it, it sort of was that pivotal time when you're being shaped as a human being. And again, my parents had a lot of interests. They loved art. Uh, we were, you know, ballet, art, museums, music. We were dragged off to every cultural thing in LA. And now I'm really glad about it. And then later in life, much, much, much later, it turned out that with 23andMe, I was able to find some of my relatives through DNA. And I had worked a lot in Sweden. I found out I was part Scandinavian. So, oh, maybe it's DNA why I feel so happy working in Sweden and Norway. Um, I found out that not one, not two, but three of my cousins are radio, my biological cousins are radio broadcaster. Turned out I was related to Judy Licht, who had married to Jerry Della Famina, the guy that they based the Madman series on. No Turns kidding. out she's a cousin. No, and she did Good Morning America in New York for 30 years. I have another cousin, Lorraine Rapp, who's a public radio talk show host in Syracuse. And then I have another cousin uh, uh, who is a weatherman in Vermont on TV. So it, I, I think that there's something to be said for DNA. So there's up, upbringing, which I had this incredible upbringing in Los Angeles. And then there's what's in your DNA programming. And somehow radio and television got into the DNA programming in the people of my tribe, my, my biological relatives. It's been an amazing journey. What a remarkable story. So you, it was really kind of, a, you had an amazing nurture around you with your parents and being so supportive and allowing you to pursue this, this dream of radio and uh, sending you on these uh, amazing adventures like you just described uh, in, in solo. And then at the same time here, there's this genetic pool that you come from with a, a whole family tree of broadcasters, which is quite remarkable. It's crazy, right? And, and the other part of it is somebody said, well, did you always want to know who you were? And I never did. But after my parents died, just for health reasons, you know, getting a little older, trying to figure out, are there any terrible surprises in store? Better better do the DNA and see if there's any genetic stuff I should know about. And they said, they, there's a little box at the bottom that said, would you like to find relatives? Sure, why not? And it turned out to just be the most marvelous thing. Somebody asked me the other day, what did it feel like? And it was like, I, I had a hole inside of me that I never knew was there until it got filled. And it's been amazing. That is amazing. Do you think your parents would have been supportive? I think my mother and father would have loved every single one of the relatives I have met. The, the thing that I kept saying to them is, I wish you could have met my mom. I wish you could have met my dad. Because, the, you know, these are really creative, interesting people. And they're fun. And they have that spirit of life and enthusiasm and joy. They're, they're joyful people. And I think that my parents would have gotten so much pleasure out of uh, meeting them. And it was decoding a lot of the mysteries of my life. So in a weird way, this chapter of life for me has been one of the happiest and most joyous. As I was doing some research on you and uh, so much to learn, by the way, and just 
all this is incredibly fascinating to me and I greatly appreciate you sharing it. You obviously grew up uh, creative with, with creative parents and intelligent parents that really nurtured uh, the, the arts. And also I think going out and taking chances, I don't think a lot of parents would be supportive or maybe as pro going out into the wilderness and learning to survive on your own, which I think is just an amazing skill set. But I don't know if my parents, I don't, my dad probably would have allowed me to do that, but my mom, no way, <laughs> you know? So I'm, I'm really impressed by that. And I'm sure it, it certainly helped give you courage to go out and and really uh, go on this adventuresome career. Right. Well, what's, what's also true is I was over 18 when I did Outward Bound. You had to be okay. over 18. And there's an awful lot of waivers that you have to sign, Got you know, <laughs> like and, and helmets to be worn and safety gear to be worn and checklists okay. on everything. I was envisioning like a Girl Scout being left to no, fend for herself. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was definitely over 18, but it was a thing that I'd really wanted to do. And it was a really interesting set of adventures. But I think, you know, the one thing my dad's said when it became clear I wasn't going to be a lawyer, although I was very, very interested in law, I wasn't going to be a teacher, although teaching was something that I had a passion for and was interested in. But the way that I looked at those jobs, I didn't see a place for me in those jobs, but maybe if I could combine things or find my own way. And what my dad said when we really sat down and had a serious talk about it was, he said, I don't care what you do. I care that whatever you do, you try your best and be your best. Give every anything you do, give it a thousand percent of what you have. Do not slack off. Do not, I mean, just always keep trying and keep growing and be the best at what it is you decide you want to do. And that was probably one of the greatest gifts my dad gave me. What a great support system and uh, encouragement. Walk me through in chronological order uh, how your career gets started. I know you now, you call the Joe Pine Show at a very early age and you obviously must be, you're very charismatic now. So I'm I'm sure you're very charismatic as, as a kid and you just excel with being on the air, it sounds like immediately. And you get to tour a radio station and you're enamored with it and you land your first gig, I believe, at KHTZ here in L.A., correct? Right. Working for Nikki Wine, who did the Sunday night public affairs show. And Nikki would let me occasionally go out with a tape recorder and interview people. And it was an awful lot of getting coffee. You know what I mean? There's unpaid, <laughs> unpaid internships. You know, it was a lot of whatever people needed. Uh, I did. But uh, I did get to see how a Sunday night public affairs show was run. We got to meet a lot of people, the movers and shakers and people who were doing interesting things in Los Angeles. And I just had a great time doing it. But I ended up working with a guy called Larry Yurden, who had been at KMET and WMET. And Larry had gone to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and started a news talk radio station, WTWN, the AM side of WLAV, uh, run by Dave Logan. In Grand Rapids. So I packed up and I moved to Grand Rapids to be a talk show host. And I had the time of my life. It was so much fun. I'm curious about that huge change. I mean, growing up in West LA and you are kind of in the, the thick of pop culture in, you know, the middle of the entertainment industry. And then you pick up to Grand Rapids, which I imagine couldn't be any more opposite. I've never been there myself, but I've seen pictures and it looks beautiful. I'm curious about what that transition was like for you. Let me back up for a second and talk about LA. Okay. It's not a real place where you look at Los Angeles and think this is America. And I was very curious about America. 
my grandfather, my dad's dad, had worked at 20th Century Fox. My uncle's wife had been the secretary to Lou Wasserman uh, at Universal. I grew up around Hollywood, and I went to school with a lot of actors and actors' kids. And I didn't want to work in the made-up world of Hollywood. I wanted to work in the real world of stories and news and trying to make life better for people and connecting communities. I didn't want the fiction of Hollywood. I wanted the facts of what was happening in America and later the world. So the only way to know about America was to get out of Los Angeles and experience the Midwest, the South, you know, the Northeast, the Northwest, to go to these places and work there and meet people and be in the middle of creative community when you do news or you're doing talk radio or you're producing. You're right in the middle of what's going on in the places and you learn. When I got to Grand Rapids, it looked like a Christmas card. I had never <laughs> seen any place with white picket fences and roses and charming little cottages and nice, nice people. And because they had a diversified economy, they had steel case and, you know, they had all kinds of different uh, things going on in Grand Rapids. When Detroit got hard hit, Grand Rapids was okay. And it was halfway between Detroit and Chicago. And I made wonderful friends and had an amazing experience there. And then after Grand Rapids, I got the opportunity to go to the West. When you get to Grand Rapids, that's your first on-air gig, right? Like as a host? That was my first paid on air where somebody paid me money to talk. And I worked with Lori DeYoung, who actually is in Baltimore as a country radio morning host who went on to have an amazing career. And I got to work with Dave Logan and all kinds of amazing people and really learn the craft. And again, met lifelong friends, produced and hosted my own show, you know, ended up just trying to immerse myself in the community as much as possible. The controller at the radio station, who was just a lovely, lovely woman, uh, she was going through a divorce and she had this great big house on a street called Thornapple River Road. And it was so beautiful. And she had a huge garden and she had two little kids and she had spare rooms. So I ended up rooming with her and getting to be in the middle of a family while I was doing my talk show. So I met her friends and they were, you know, teachers, lawyers, doctors, shop owners. And I got to have conversations with people that if I had just gotten an apartment somewhere or a house somewhere, I never would have had. So it was through Sarah. She really opened up that town for me in a way that was very, very special just by living in her house. And by the way, getting a whole basement to myself in the Midwest, which is phenomenal. And I really had a great experience. And when that job ended, I, I remain grateful to this day to, to having had that experience. Charlie Wright, who was on the air in LA, came out there. I mean, there were a lot of people because we were trying a lot of fun things. Treating AM talk radio like personality FM morning shows all day long before anybody had the idea to do that. I think a lot of people view you, including myself, as just this incredible talent and uh, amongst the top consultants on the planet with so much knowledge and so well spoken. I mean, it's actually kind of a little bit intimidating when I speak to you because you're just so articulate. And did you have fear? I look at you and when I speak to you, you exude confidence. And it sounds like you were brought up with all this confidence uh, 
in love and support around you. Were you nervous when you're there cracking the mic for the first time and really kind of cutting your teeth at the radio station? I would love to hear more about just kind of some of your vulnerabilities at that point. I think the vulnerabilities are more the politics of a radio station. Like when you walk into a radio station, it took me a long time to understand you have to be really, really nice to the front desk receptionist. That's a person who has wielded great power. Sometimes somebody would get fired because the owner's wife's hairdresser didn't like the morning men. And those were the things that didn't seem fair or right to me. And the lesson that was hardest for me, because I wanted life to be fair and it is not. And the lesson that was hardest for me to learn, and once I learned it, it changed my life. And it was really later on, it was Ed Shane, the late Ed Shane, who was a country consultant who sat down with me and he said, there's what's right, there's what's wrong, and there's what is. If you try to do what's right and try to avoid what's wrong, that's great. But if you don't deal with what is, you will not make it. And so a lot of my career was learning, trying to do the right thing, and sometimes dogmatically so. But it wasn't until you work with what is that you can become successful. That took a long time, and that was an ongoing process. Uh, and still to this day, I still think we all struggle with it. Great advice. And was there any time where you called your parents and you just were, I've had enough, I want to come home? Okay. So the first time I got fired and I called my mom, I said, Ma, I lost my job. And she said, well, what did you do? I said, nothing. We did nothing. They changed the format. They were broadcasting this and now they've decided to go quote unquote in a different direction and they have fired 11 people. And my mother was shamed. She was completely shamed and she couldn't tell her friends and didn't tell anybody in the family. And she was mortified. And my father was like, how could this happen to you? You know, you work hard, you do well, you succeed. How, how could they had no clue of it? By the fourth or fifth time a station had changed format or I had gotten fired or, you know, it happened. My mom was telling her friends, oh, it's no problem. You know, Valerie always does really well in the demographic. She's always gotten another job and she's never been out of work for more than a month. So we're not too worried about her. She knows her stuff. So it took that transition, you know, of being able to convince my parents that your only job security in radio for many, many years was your ability to secure your next job. And so if you do good work and you make sure you have good relationships with people that you work with and also people that apply for jobs, if you treat them with dignity and honor, even if you do not hire them, you know, you respond and you make sure and like a garden caretake all relationships because that kid who wants a tour of the station today may actually hire you in five years. So to be nice to everyone and to try to um, open your heart to all kinds of people and to listen to people, you know, these are all things that will help you. And the other part of it is know when a job is not right for you. Somebody suggested to me, go out on every job, you know, even if they're looking for this or that or the other, go out for everything and meet the people who can hire you. But if a job isn't right for you, it's going to go wrong and you're not going to be in it very long. So treat it as the opportunity to meet the person that could hire you. And the next time they have a position that is right for you, 
they might think about you, especially if you stay in contact with them. So I have a friend who's an actor and he would go out on, you know, I mean, he happens to be African-American and he would go out for, you know, Irish parts and everything because he would be able to meet the casting directors. And the casting director would look him in the eye and go, you're not right for this part. And go, I know, but now I've met you. So smart. And he's doing very, very well today. He is somebody who is easily recognizable on billboards across and busboards across Los Angeles to this very day. Oh, what a great story. I I love hearing that. Go out on every job opportunity, meet everyone. Do not say, oh, that's not for me. And don't go for it. Go for it. Get the meeting. Thank you for sharing so much fantastic advice throughout this. There's just so many great uh, uh, pieces of information that I think is going to be incredibly helpful, hopefully for a lot of the people listening and, and including myself. So Grand Rapids, and then you head to Casper, Wyoming. So you go from basically the Midwest into kind of like this mountainous region, correct? Yes. And I loved it. I mean, it was Wyoming during a time when uh, the oil industry was taking off and the town had tripled in population and they needed news people. So I went in as a reporter and I got to meet people like Phil Strider and, oh my gosh, all kinds of really, really wonderful people and work both stations. One was an AM hits radio station and the other was a country station. But prior to going country, it had been AOR and Phil Strider had been the architect of that. And it was very, very successful. And he took that success and went down to KBPI and uh, and had a very, very long, successful run there. So I went to Wyoming, was totally knocked out by just the place. There was a restaurant called Benham's. And in the middle of nowhere, the family who owned Benham's had sent their son to the Cordon Bleu in Paris from Wyoming. And he came back and the food at this place was incredible. I mean, here we are in the middle of nowhere. There's, they're still having the things where you tie up your horse in the street <laughs> and we're having French cuisine, right? I mean, there were so many incongruities and anomalies to be in Wyoming. At night, when you look up at the sky, you can see every single star and you totally, I mean, it's just magical. The sunsets, that big sky in Wyoming. You know, if you haven't been to Wyoming and Montana, it's worth it to go there just to experience the, the, the hugeness of the space and the feeling of being so small in the world and, and this, the land itself. And in fact, in Wyoming, a guy that I interviewed for our, our, we had a Sunday talk show and I'd interviewed him, Ed Bryant. He took me out and showed me uh, in Wyoming uh, fossils on the rock walls because this whole place had been underwater and there were fossils of sharks and other fish, skeletons in these rock walls in the middle of um, the American Rocky Mountain West. It was, it was amazing. Never been, but I've heard it's just absolutely spectacular. You and Bonnie need to go. You should go see this part of America. It's so special. And the thoughts that are in your head when you're under those big skies, are, it's amazing. So in Casper, at this point, do you see yourself as an on-air talent personality or more of a journalist? Well, you end up doing everything when you work in a small station where it's literally in a trailer. Our offices were in a, uh, you know, a recreational housing. It was, it was a trailer in the back. Amazing things happened. I mean, there would be a tornado and the wind would come up at 80 miles an hour and little old ladies would be blowing down the street. I mean, it was really oh something else. 
it was another world, Chachi. It was something that was so unusual. But again, for me, it was what was fascinating to me was it was different from what I'd known. And I had the opportunity to meet all kinds of people. I met cowboys. I mean, I met guys who were ranchers who's, you know, they really, they rounded up cattle and that was their job. Just people who had different kinds of jobs and different kinds of worldviews, different kinds of, I mean, at the time our, our congressional delegation was Dick Cheney and Malcolm Wallop and Alan Simpson. And that was the entire congressional delegation. And I got to meet all three of them. I got to meet Lynn Cheney. I got to talk to them. I got to know them. I got to understand the power of oil and mineral rights and money. I got to understand the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States with the oil business. I got to sit in on a training when they were training Saudi Arabian people in the oil business to use diamond drill bits. I learned a lot. You know, I went to the Rotary Clubs. I learned what life in these places was like in a place where the living is hard. And in Wyoming, it's hard. The elements, it's you really have to depend on your neighbors and you really, as independent as you are, how people came through for one another. It was really amazing to be able to observe that and actually, quite frankly, experience it. You asked what I did. I did news on both radio stations. I was a reporter on both stations, occasionally under another name, fill in disc jockey work on both stations, public affairs show director on both stations. And then there was a lot of public events that would go on where you would represent the station. So a lot of that. And it was never a dull moment. And, you know, 19 hour a day working and you don't mind, you know, you're just working all the time and it's all about the station. Adrenaline and passion, I get it. And That's, pizza. Yeah, and pizza. pizza. Adrenaline <laughs> and passion. So now a big market comes calling, Denver. How did that come to be? Well, I actually got three offers in one day. Uh, I felt that I had had enough of my time in Casper. I'd gone through, you know, a really, really tough winter. And I felt I'd really learned all I could learn. I felt I was ready to move on. I was itching to go and itching to have new experiences. And so I put out a lot of applications. And in one day, I got three offers. I got an offer from Cody, Wyoming, to be a program director. I got an offer from 95 Kim Radio in Denver. And I got an offer from K News in Denver. I took K News, and then that was starting up as a talk radio station. And I got to work with Carl Gardner and a whole lot of people. And then very, very quickly, I got an offer to be on the air uh, at KOA in Denver. So I, I, I did that and, and just didn't look back and had an absolutely fantastic time. What a legendary station KOA is. What did you do at KOA? 38 states at night. I did uh, 8 to 11 after sports following Alan Berg and a bunch of other people. The movie talk radio was based on uh, the murder of Alan Berg. I then did midnight to five for a number of months there. And then Drew Hayes heard me on the air and hired me to go to Tampa. Wow. From And I didn't realize that you, Drew, someone I've got so much respect for, is at uh, KBC now here in L.A. Drew was the PD at WPLP in uh, Pinellas Park, Florida, which was a Tampa Bay talk radio station. And uh, Drew and I connected. We saw eye to eye. And he was so much fun and so filled with life and energy and enthusiasm. And he, he, he was like, I mean, I loved Drew on side. He was like a chihuahua. He just had all this energy and, <laughs> you know, running around and, and he's still like that. I mean, decades later, you know, he's still like that, but he, he really, he had the best intentions and smart ideas. And he had been a second generation broadcaster. His dad uh, was a broadcaster. And so he grew up, literally grew up uh, at a console, you know, and very, very talented talk show host himself. And then like so many, 
directing is almost more fun than being on air when you can get as big a kick out of somebody else's work as you get out of your own and you're always trying to find people and develop them. Uh, it's why a lot of us went into programming because we wanted to be the ringleader and the marionette string puller, not just the marionette. When you get to Tampa, what did Drew hire you to do there? I was on the air producing and hosting my own talk show from six to eight at night. And I did that for about a year. Give me some advice that Drew had taught you because I've heard uh, Ken Charles, I got to interview him about a year ago. And uh, again, right. another... Ken actually was the producer. <laughs> Ken no was way. my producer. He was my call screener. And he, he was also going to law school. So law school and producing my show. So you go to law school by day and at night, he cut slide in and screen my calls. I don't even think he shaved yet. I mean, he was a kid. What a great story. So you, Drew and Ken all working at the same station at the same time. Yeah. And it was like, and you don't even realize, like looking back now, when I get together with Ken Charles, it's it, and Perry Michael Simon and Ken and I had lunch right before COVID hit. And we were talking about the old days and, and you don't even realize how much fun it is until you, you, you work places where maybe it's not so much fun. And, you know, that time there was a crocodile in the parking lot because it was on a swamp, you know, and I think it was Drew who had to come out with a fire extinguisher or Ken came out with a fire extinguisher. We had to, we had to fight, you know, wildlife, you know, but oh it was God. just, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about doing a daily show. Scott Shannon was across the bay on Q105 and I listened to him every morning and picked up a lot of tricks from him about just always being an entertainer and learning how to pivot. Whatever you have planned, drop it and do something better if it comes along. And I learned that from Scott Shannon. Just, you know, learn, learn, learn. You head back to Denver. I was dating somebody and uh, so, and I missed him. And so I went back to Denver. And of course, I got a job at KPPL and KLAK, owned by Mallwright at the time. And the minute I got back, you know, the relationship from afar, we were pining for each other. We missed each other. And, you know, we had just started seeing each other when I left Denver to go to Tampa. And then when I came back, how do you put this nicely? It just, the spark wasn't there, you know? It just, it wasn't there. I, I wish it would have been, but it wasn't there. So I didn't stay very long. Sometimes that absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Here's what I learned, Chachi, and I can't speak for anybody else, but I really learned for me, long distance relationships do not work. Part of a partnership is knowing the mundane, the day-to-day, the parts of life that are minutia, uh, knowing a lot about a person, the good, the bad, the ugly, and loving them anyway. And the day-to-day has a lot to do, you know, with, I think, really good, successful partnerships. And when it's long distance, you get the high points, you know, everybody's on good behavior and it's like a honeymoon, like a vacation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like exciting, but it's not the part that is, you know, got to take the car in or your mom's sick. I'll go pick her up, take her to the doctor. It's not this, the real stuff of partnership day to day, having the other person's back, knowing that you can count on somebody else as your life partner. I think that that is really day to day, unless you want that kind of feeling of an affair rather than a relationship. And some people go like affair to affair and there's no, I mean, I have no judgment around it. That's a uh- Great point, because back to that kind of adrenaline and that passion when a relationship is new or exciting, it's certainly you have different feelings. There's a different chemical reaction in your head and that I think dissipates over time and you never get a real sense of reality when you're not with the person a lot. 
Exactly. And if you're like an adrenaline junkie on the dopamine of always falling in love. And I think that's part of the problem with, you know, Tinder and the internet age of there's always going to be somebody better that gets you more excited in some way or who's more sure. exciting for you. And so they never, ever stick with the one they've got. It actually was Joel Denver uh, at a conference a couple of years ago. That was your, your boyfriend in Denver? No, no. Joel Denver, <laughs> Joel Denver, who I love and respect and worked with him actually briefly at R&R and have I've, the utmost respect for Joel. He's great. And when Joel's wife Rhea died, you know, it was a really, it was very, very tough. She had been ill and she passed away. And then Joel met somebody else and he fell in love. And at, I think it was an NAB conference. In fact, I think we were all in Dallas. There are a group of people standing around Joel. And one of them said, how did you know that this woman you're with now was the one. And Joel got quiet and he looked at the guy who was probably 24, 25. And you can tell he is, that guy was Mr. Tinder, right? Mr. You know, jock radio guy, cool guy, hip guy, you know, you know, a different one every night kind of guy. And yet he was asking Joel, how did you know that this woman that you're now seeing is the right one? And Joel got quiet. He looked him in the eye and he said, you stop looking. You say to the person you're with, you look at them and you say, this person is good. And I'm going to just make a choice that I'm going to be with this person. And you stop looking. And he's just been blissed out. You know, his house burned down in the Malibu fire and she stuck with him and, and they have a new home now. And he's, he is deliriously happy in this relationship. It's a very joyous time for him in, in a whole new chapter. And that was his secret. Thank you for sharing that story. It's so powerful. And Joel, I did not know he was so romantic. Very it, it, great story and a good man and really. Well, happy. and he's pre, he was practical too. I mean, really yeah. practical. And, yeah. and he's found the way to make it work. And he was really sharing not just radio and wisdom and advice, but he was really sharing how to find somebody and be with them in the world. And it means doing the hard work does. He's a good man. And talking about hard work, that guy works some amazing hours. He's always up at uh, like 3 a.m., 3.30, and uh, just always available. No matter when you call him, Joel makes himself available to you. I've got a tremendous amount of respect for him. Well, the reason why is because it's his passion, Chachi. Radio and, and music and the record industry and creativity is his passion. And so whenever you find something that doesn't feel like work, you can't wait to get up in the morning and do it. You can't wait. And at night, when you when you go to bed, you, you feel like, oh, I can't wait till tomorrow because there's so much to do that I want to do. And Joel's one of those people. So true. So true. And again, more great advice. I Thank you so much for dispensing all this fantastic advice. So your relationship, unfortunately, falls apart in Denver, and then you end up in Phoenix. Right. Um, I ended up working with uh, Lee Harris and Charlie Van Dyke and a whole bunch of fantastic people. Uh, I I heard they were looking around for somebody that might have some talk work and some news work. And that was interesting to me. So I applied for the job and I sent the tape in and Lee Harris was the assistant. He's now the morning anchor on 1010 Winds Radio uh, in New York City, number one in the demographic in New York. So proud of him. Hard worker and funny, funny man. But Lee... I called him up. I said, did you get my tape? At the time it was cassette. And he goes, yeah, I got your tape. I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, I didn't think much. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, it was blank. I had sent a blank tape. I was such an (laughs) idiot. I didn't listen back. Another lesson, always make sure the audio is on the tape. 
So I had to then send him another blank tape that wasn't a blank. And then, you know, I went down and visited and, you know, Phoenix is really nice. And I really liked Lee. He made me laugh for an hour. And Charlie Van Dyke, uh, you know, I thought if I get a chance to work with this man, I understand that I am working with a master of this art form that is radio. And to work with these people would be a great opportunity. The other thing is the station was owned by the Pulitzers. And they gave out the Pulitzer Prizes every year, and they were a big supporter of journalism. So if there was a copper strike down in South America, and there was the copper industry in Arizona, and they wanted to send somebody down to Brazil to cover it, they were sending reporters. And they were resourced, and they had lots of news cars, and you know they had really fantastic resources. And I saw that anybody who wanted to be serious about storytelling and journalism, resources were not going to be a problem there. And so I happily took that job. I stayed for a year there, had a wonderful time. And then I had the opportunity to become news director at K101 in San Francisco. And I grabbed that job and got in the car and drove to San Francisco and stayed there for quite a while because it was a wonderful job and I loved it. Were your parents at that point, I am imagining going, wow, this has really paid off. You're in a major market, a beautiful city. You're the news director. I mean, that's quite an ascension throughout, uh, throughout your career. Was there a time where you guys celebrated together? Well, my parents would visit me. They would come wherever I was. So when I was in Wyoming, they came to Wyoming. When I was in Colorado, they came to Denver. And I took them to Estes Park where the movie The Shining had been filmed. And we went to that old hotel and the Stanley Hotel. And we, my parents walked the halls of the Stanley. I still have photos, you know, and just a, a great time. And wherever I lived, they would come. My dad visited me in Tampa and my father could not believe that the newspaper in Tampa, St. Petersburg had four sections on sailing. And he happened to be visiting the week that they had the boat show. So guess where I went with my dad when they came to Tampa? You know, <laughs> boats and ocean being my least favorite thing. I'm going with my dad to the boat show. But the bottom line is when I moved to San Francisco, they started making noises like, do you think you'd ever have a chance to come back to Los Angeles? You know, we're getting older and we'd like to have you around. And the visits were sporadic. And I was very, very busy. In San Francisco, I'd quickly been such a squeaky wheel with, we were Associated Press affiliates. And at the time, there were so many little minutia things wrong. And I would call and complain all the time. And finally, they said, okay, stop your whining. We're now putting you on the board of directors. So I ended up on the broadcast board of directors of the Associated Press because who better than to try to make it better than those of us who actually utilize their product day in and day out. Just like if you get a call from one of your affiliates and they have a complaint and it's legitimate, that's somebody who's using your product in a different way than you who are making your product, right? Sure. And so you're going to listen in a different way. So it was a wonderful experience. And I was going to Washington in the AP. And then there was the Radio and Television News Directors Association. I got acted in that board. And I just, again, had a wonderful staff of people that uh, worked with me and a really interesting time in radio. And so uh, for me, it was just a lot of fun. And I stayed there for five years. And then at the end of that, I kind of got the opportunity to work at Radio and Records. Jeff Green was leaving and uh, I took over Jeff Green's job at Radio and Records and wrote a news talk column for them in LA and I got to move back to LA. And then within three months of working at r and I heard KFI Radio owned by Cox 
was going to go news talk. And they had hired Ken Cole from Seattle to be the program director to transition from a music station that was dying to hopefully a news talk radio station that would go up against KABC and be still my heart. This was the dream job to be able to work in talk radio in my hometown in Los Angeles. I couldn't breathe. I wanted this job so badly. So then it became, how do I get in? So what happened was I ended up knocking on the door and they had some freelance news jobs available. So I started freelancing for KFI and then ultimately became a a part of it. And what did they hire you initially to do after freelance? At first it was news and then it was executive producer. And as soon as the staff was in place, as soon as Tom Likas had been hired from Arizona, uh, Tony Grant, I mean, as soon as the the main players were put into place, then I moved back over from executive producer back into news and news reporting, then filling in on coast under another name, often with Mark and Kim, also uh, filling in for Sharon Dale for the public affairs talk show and basically doing any job that needed doing. Because quite frankly, my eyes were looking toward being a program director. And I wanted to learn every single job you could learn. And the only way you could learn that was by doing it. So I went on my knees to Johnny Kay and said, put me to work, anything you need me to do, I will do. And he, you, you know, he took me up on it. And I got to learn And uh, it was really amazing. By the third time I was passed over for program director uh, at KFI, and by the time after two years, we had taken it from number 28 to top five in Los Angeles, I was ready to make a move. And I was also freelancing around town, helping out friends. I had a friend who was the news director at K-Earth 101. She needed some backup when she was getting married. So at five o'clock in the morning until nine, I used another name and I went on the air and did her newscasts. And then my friend, Liz Kylie, who you know, needed to fill out a period of time before Big Boy started at Power 106 in Los Angeles. Liz was the PD and she had gotten Tim Kelly, who was at Premier Radio, vice president of Premier and an executive, got him to come in. He'd been a disc jockey, got him to come in and, uh, and do the morning show until Big Boy could get there. And they asked me if I could use another name and come in like from maybe six till nine or something and then record the last newscast and then go to my real job at KFI. And I I wanted to do anything to help Liz because she was like a wonderful human being, still is. And so I agreed to do this to help out and fill in. And it was while I was at this radio station at six o'clock in the morning across the table from Tim Kelly that the phone rang and I found out I had gotten the job as program director of WABC in New York, and I was going to get to live my dream. Amazing. So you actually never made it to the program director role at KFI? No, I did not. I was up for it every time, and I would go through the interview process. But there's a dynamic, and it's an old saying. I think it's a Polish saying. It might be an Austrian saying. It's something along the lines of, you are always a child in the home of your parents. And sometimes when you go into a station at a certain level in a certain role, you're never seen growing up into other roles. They always imagine you or see you as the role you came in with. So if you're a part-timer, you're always a part-timer. If you're, if you're doing news, they don't see you in a management position. If you come in as management, they don't see you as an on-air person. 
So sometimes you have to leave city and leave town in order to try those new things. So for example, I did news when I was in Wyoming, but I did talk when I was in Denver. And so it, it's like when you do one thing, one place, sometimes they don't accept you. Yeah. How did you, I guess, stay so humble? Here you are the news director in San Francisco. You're on the board of the AP and your career is just, you know, you're, you're on the rise. And then when you came to Los Angeles, you were, your work ethic's incredible. And I've got a tremendous amount of uh, respect for that, but they had you doing basically smaller gigs. I'm not saying they're not important, but I would have thought because of your success that they would have put you into a bigger role. I think that there are corporate cultures and probably Liz Kylie is the better one to talk about that corporate culture. She was number two uh, at, uh, at Coast for many, many years, and she had to leave the station to get her own programming job. I think sometimes you walk in and people do get an impression of who you are by how you've walked in. And so it's like, for example, the woman that's always in the nurse's uniform that you see on the subway, and all of a sudden she's dressed up for the formal dinner party, and you go, holy cow, look at you. You know, you see that person in another light. What I know is program directors and great directors can see potential. Other people just see what is. And so if you're working with people who just see you as you are and as you appear now, they don't see your potential, then that's one way of looking at the world. And then there's another way of looking at the world where people see your potential. Fortunately for me, Chachi, I loved the work. So when Los Angeles, when the first national bank downtown Los Angeles was on fire and the building collapsed, I got to go cover that, you know, and I got to meet amazing people working at that radio station. I loved working with people that I thought were amazing. Randy, Allison, Mayhem, who went on to write uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. And she became a, a screenwriter and, and is a very, very successful person in Hollywood now. I got to work with all kinds of amazingly talented people that if I hadn't walked in at sort of a lower rung on the, on the ladder after having been at the top, you know, more of an upper rung on the ladder, I would never have had the chance to have those experiences or get those relationships. And I think that part of status is ego. And if you can let go of your ego and say, is today a good day? And did what I do today matter? And every day I was at KFI, I felt like I was doing work that was worthwhile. And when Dan Avey and I won the Los Angeles Press Club Best Newscast Award, and I was a, you know, just a fill-in news person, and that was a time when I was still freelancing for them, but I happened to be anchoring the day the contest was happening, Dan Avey and I won Los Angeles Press Club Best Newscast. And that was a time when I realized, you know, people, if you're good, people find you. If you're good, you're going to get recognized. Sooner or later, if you just do good work, you have ethics, you do it consistently, always show up with a good attitude. And, you know, I have friends who are in the acting world and sometimes they do a big part and they're a star and sometimes they do a small part. And that little part they do has so much more impact. So always looking at the bigger picture. How have I served the listeners today? People listening to me, did they get served? And as a program director, people listening to my station, did my audience get served today? Did we inform, entertain, inspire, persuade, and connect the audience to community and to life? And if people feel alone, did they feel connected? And whether you're doing that with music or talk or news, 
a podcast on the radio, whether it's pre-recorded or whether it's live, it doesn't matter. Did you hold up a mirror and reflect life? Did the work matter? Was it relevant? And I always looked at it as sometimes being kicked off the top rung and having to come back up. Sometimes there's great lessons and great reward in that. And I think that there's a lot of ego in radio and the best, best people check their ego at the door and just do the work. Those are the best people. Amazing advice. Tell me about that call before I interrupted you that you got the gig at WABC. What did that feel like? I worked for a guy called Fred Winehouse and he called and Tim answered the phone and Fred had this New York accent and he says to Tim, hello? And Tim <laughs> goes, yes. And, and, you know, who would have been given the hotline number, right? You know, but I told, I had told him I'm, I'm on the air helping a friend out. And if you need to reach me between these hours, here's where you can find me. And if you need me these hours, here's where you can find me. It was before everybody had a cell phone. And so he calls Tim and he goes, is Geller there? And Tim says, well, she's using another name, you know, on the air, but if you need Valerie Geller, I'll find her for you. And he found me and he said, there's some New York accent guy on the phone. And I grabbed the phone, took it in the other office. And Fred Winehouse offered me the job as program director of WABC in New York. And I walked out. I said, yes. Then I said to Tim, you're not going to believe this one. He goes, hang on. I'm in the middle of a bit. So he did his thing (laughs) during the break. He goes, yeah, you had something you wanted to say something. And I said, Tim Kelly, you are now looking at the next program director of WABC Talk Radio in New York City. (laughs) That's amazing. And Tim starts singing 77 WABC. (laughs) He thought I was kidding. (laughs) Then I got off the air and I walked into Liz Kiley and I said, Liz, I just got a job offer from WABC. And I said, yes. And Liz says, why are you here? I'll help you pass. It was so exciting. And the greatest thing was to go to lunch with David G. Hall, who I really admire and like so much and who treated me so well at KFI. And in fact, a little known David G. Hall story is that one time I was really sick from the flu. We all got the flu and half the newsroom was out and I was just getting the flu and I got hit with it at 11.59.59 and I had to do a newscast. And I looked at David and I said, I can't, I'm not going to die here. And David ran out and bought the biggest bottle of Pepto-Bismol I have ever seen in my life. And I drank half of it and was <laughs> able to do my shift. But David literally, he grabbed his car keys and ran to the drugstore and got the Pepto-Bismol. And he was a very, very, it was a wonderful act of kindness. And I'm a big fan of his. And, and we're, we mutually admire one another. And he was officially the program director. And I officially handed in my resignation and my two weeks notice to him. Oh, man. How would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, Valerie Geller, turning in her letter of resignation to David G. Hall. I mean, just two legends in the business because you were going to go take the gig at WABC. I mean, wow, that is, that's radio drama there for you. It was fun. And, and uh, again, the relationships that I made at, at KFI and Coast, I treasure to this day. I mean, I met you, Chachi. I mean, it's Karen Sharp. I mean, these amazingly wonderful people. So you get to New York. What was it like walking through the doors of WABC for the first time? Well, you know, I had walked in to a radio station that had uh, lost a beloved PD, John Minnelli, 
who had left. And so I was filling some very, very big shoes and we were needing to find a morning show and Rush Limbaugh had just started. And in New York, he had zero, zero, zero ratings in New York city. The take on Rush was that he was some yokel from the Midwest and why would somebody have him on in New York? But I had been listening to Rush for quite some time at, uh, at KFI and I knew about him from KFBK prior to that. So I knew it was worth fighting for him. So I actually wanted to put Rush on Morning Drive with Kathleen Maloney and they did a demo and it was amazing. And we, we had Rush on two hours locally, and then he had his two-hour national show at the time. And we hired a new morning show, and we hired, you know, we, we had Lynn Samuels on the air with us, and lots and lots of really interesting people, Bob Grant. And I walked in, and it was an amazing team, uh, New York, top, top people, and really had a great time. And so for me, uh, you know, again, after WABC, where do you go? What do you do? And for me, after, you know, programming a top station in New York City, it became the world. I really wanted to um, work with broadcasters all over the world, and I wanted to see the world. And I had developed a lot of methodologies of training, and part of the fun of being a program director and managing your own station is getting to find and develop new talent. I got to put Joy Behar on the air when she was, you know, working as a, a part-time teacher, part-time stand-up comic and hadn't done radio, hadn't done too much television. And so we got to find and develop people that we just thought were brilliant and had a lot of potential. And I had always been able to spot talent. I always had a good nose for who could make the needle move. And that's really what I wanted to do. And I believed that everybody could get better. Not everyone was going to be great, but everyone could get better. And I had developed just through trial and error, a way of training. And it was a model. It was focus, engage, opinion, position, storytelling, how to do a talk show, how to do a monologue, how to write a story, how to engage a listener, how to speak and write more visually on the air, how to be your authentic self, how to make it about the listener, not you, because the number one complaint of personality radio everywhere was that guy talks all about himself. It's boring, but the personal is universal and we want people to put who they are in their shows. So it became go personal, not private. Don't make it I, 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 make it about the listener. Just filter it through your DNA and your observations of life, your creativity and your experiences. So I learned how to teach that to people. And that skill turned out to be golden and it opened up a whole next chapter of my career. Which you've gone on to have just tremendous success, four books. You normally are traveling the world, consulting stations virtually on every continent, uh, ranging from uh, the BBC to uh, NPR uh, to uh, Reuters. Uh, what's it been like for you kind of being grounded over this last year? Well, you know, it's interesting. We were making it work because with our wings clipped, it's amazing how creative people are. So if we can't fly places, what I decided to do, and I actually, a lot of consultants I know did the same thing, because we work in advertiser-based industries and in America, including NPR, which is sponsor-based, which is advertiser-based and listener-based where they contribute and everybody's money was down. So I just cut my rate because I needed to feel purposeful and I needed to work. And because people didn't have to fly me in and because I didn't have to be in a hotel, I could work by the hour. 
So suddenly I was working with broadcasters from, you know, six or seven in the morning with Europe all the way till 11 at night with Australia. And so it became, I was, I've never been busier in my life doing training with both podcasters and broadcasters with one-on-one coaching. Um, The books are basically cookbooks beyond powerful radio. If anyone's interested, it's also a free audible book. Uh, but if you go to beyondpowerfulradio.com, that book is a cookbook and it has all of the methodology just based on three things, tell the truth, make it matter, and never be boring. 500 pages on that written like a cookbook. And then the audiobook, we used a lot of the people who contributed to my book because they all had home studios. So that was a big, huge, fun project and lots and lots of fun. But there's a lot of creativity in podcasting. This month, the month of June, we're doing this in June. I'm working uh, at four in the afternoon until nine at night with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, doing one-on-one coaching and workshops for them. I've got you know public radio clients everywhere from Utah to Washington D.C. I'm working with uh, British uh, people in England. Uh, you know they're nine and ten hours ahead, and you just figure out the time factor, and you work via audio Zoom. And anybody who says to me, Valerie, I'd like to be better. Will you help? Can you help me? Just like my dad as a surgeon, if a sick person came to him and said, doctor, can you help? Um, You can't resist the call. If somebody comes to you and says, can you help me be better? Can you help polish me like a diamond and help me be all I can be in this industry and, and with this work and working with creative people? It's just been a joy and an amazing thing and a real challenge. I could not recommend your books anymore, and you are just a phenomenal human being. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Well, Chachi, I want to just jump in. While you're thanking me, I'd like to thank you. Thank you to Chachi and to Benstown for supporting this book, for sponsoring the book and my sessions in Africa and South Africa, purchasing books for people who would never be able to afford it on their own. And now they have a book and in very, very small places and very poor places and difficult places in Africa, these broadcasters now have a chance to become more powerful and engage with their audiences because of the gift that Benstown and you, Chachi, have given them of making my books available. So I would like to just thank you. And, and again, it is a great honor and pleasure. When you asked me to do this, I thought, who would ever be interested in my story? You know, I mean, to me, it's like, a, it's not so interesting. But what, what I do feel I can do is offer tools to every single broadcaster who's interested, every communicator, every podcaster who would like to get up to the next level and learn techniques so that they can fly higher and see how tall a tree each person can become. Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you'll leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Benstown Podcast production, hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Kevin Horton. Produced and edited by Tom Green. Show coordinator, Juliana Parisi and Laura Keene.